Maybe you heard rumblings of news about a cure being found for pet allergies. No? Well, we did, and we have the inside scoop on a new vaccine that, in trials, has really been helping people fend off their allergies to cats, grass, and dust mites. You're listening to the Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Today, Roger, we hear about why common allergies may become a thing of the past. Do you mean there's no more sniffling and sneezing due to pets and hay fever from you? (laughs) That's right, because a UK biotech company has been developing and testing vaccines for allergies to cats, grasses and dust mites. Dust mites? Do you mean those sort of microscopic things in the house that live in your furniture and all over the place? And And fabrics fabrics and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, those are the ones. They're related to ticks, chiggers and spiders. And even though they don't bite people, they're a real nuisance because they trigger asthma and allergies in loads of people. And tell me, you're allergic to most of them, are you? Uh, Yeah, well, I'm allergic to most things. (laughs) You can imagine my excitement about these clinical trials in Canada that are testing a new treatment using something called spires and to learn more about what spires are and to hear more about this new kind of allergy vaccine i chatted on the phone with professor mark larchet who is leading these clinical trials so roger let's have a listen this is chris crease from the science show and today i'm chatting with mark larchet hi mark Hi. And Mark is Canada Research Chair in Allergy and Immune Tolerance at McMaster University, also at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and he's also an Honorary Research Fellow in Medicine at Imperial College London. And if that didn't keep him busy enough, Mark also started a biotech company here in the UK to develop vaccines for allergic diseases. Well, thanks very much for chatting with us here today, Mark. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Now, you're originally from the UK. Whereabouts? I uh, am from southwest London. I grew up uh, in the Wimbledon area, went to school in Wimbledon, and then spent uh, most of my career moving around within the University of London. Prior to moving to Canada, I was at Imperial College, and that's where the honorary title comes in there. They had a very interesting experience leading up to your career in science, including working with Nobel Prize researchers. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. So when I left school uh, at the age of 18, I wasn't sure where I was going, really. And I was sitting on a tube on the London Underground reading a copy of New Scientist. And I read uh, an article about how the immune system distinguishes self from non-self. So why doesn't it attack itself, but it does attack bacteria and viruses, etc. That really captured my imagination. I decided that immunology was going to be my future career. Now, that work was performed by... Peter Doherty, an Australian immunologist, and Rolf Zinkenagel, a Swiss immunologist. And that work ultimately led to the 1996 Nobel Prize. Well, I was so taken by that article that I decided I would go off and do some research and get a PhD. And then actually after my PhD, I ended up going to the States to work with Peter Doherty just a few years prior to the award of of his Nobel Prize, uh, which I contributed nothing to. (laughs) (laughs) Moral support. That can't be understated. 
That's right. <laughs> a fantastic experience leading you into a very prestigious immunology career. And you've just completed a clinical trial that successfully treated people for hay fever, which is allergy to grass pollens, and dust mite allergies. And we're going to chat a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But first, I was hoping you could tell us what are allergies what causes them, and how many people are affected by them? Well, in terms of how many people are affected, it depends how you define allergy. But if we define it on the basis of a positive skin test, so you put the substance on the skin and just make a little prick in the skin, then about 50% of the population in the industrialized world uh, have a positive test. But in fact, only about half of those, so 25% of the population have clinical symptoms. And that can range from very mild sort of hay fever, sniffles, what have you, all the way through to severe anaphylactic type reactions for some foods, for example. In terms of what causes them, I think most people know when they're allergic to something, it can be grass pollen, cat dander, all kinds of weeds, house dust mites, or it can be food. So generally, we think of aeroallergens, so things that blow around in the air, or foods, peanut, shellfish, what have you. I heard that about a quarter of the population in North America and Europe is sensitive to grass pollen. So grass is a big one. That's right. I mean, the figures show actually just under 30% of people have a positive test to grass pollen. Um, I mean, I'm one of those people actually myself. So I have mild symptoms, itchy eyes and sneezing, etc. But many of those people will not have clinically significant symptoms. So we can say that, you know, 30% of the population are sensitized, but probably only 15% of the population would actually seek treatment. So about a quarter of people are also sensitized to dust mites. Yes. So in North America, dust mites, a weed called ragweed, which is not really an issue in Northern Europe, and grass pollen, those are really the big ones. I mean, about 30% of the population have a positive test to any one of those three, or many people are allergic to more than one of them. What inspired you to look at dust mites and grass as your focus for your clinical studies? Well, in fact, the first thing we looked at was cat dander, which is another big one. It's not as big as grass or uh, house dust mite, but uh, the advantage is that the majority of people are, are mainly allergic to one protein within the cat dander, whereas for grass and house dust mites, there are many, many proteins that can elicit allergic reactions, so they're more difficult to study. So we started with a product to treat cat allergy and performed several clinical trials. This is all in collaboration with the biotech company that uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is called Circassia. And with positive results from those trials, we were sort of inspired to to go on and tackle the more difficult products to develop, actually, not necessarily more difficult allergies themselves, but the products to develop them are much more difficult. And that's why we moved into the big arenas of, uh, of grass pollen and, and house dust mites. And, you know, as you said, we've had similar success with the clinical trials performed to date in those areas. Excellent. So before we chat about your experiments, let's understand the treatment that you wanted to test. So you used something called synthetic peptide immune regulatory epitopes, which you call spires for short. What exactly is a spire? This is a, really a, a process of deconstructing the protein that causes the allergic reaction. So the initiation of an allergic reaction is due to an allergen protein binding to an allergic antibody, which is a, a class of antibody called IgE. So we basically have deconstructed those proteins and removed the parts of the protein that bind to the allergic antibody. 
and we focus in on small strings of amino acids, peptides, that are the target of T lymphocytes in the immune system. So these are the same cells that are affected in HIV, for example, right. uh, just to orient people. We basically have, over the years, developed an understanding of how to switch those cells on or switch them off. And in this particular case, we can use the spires to switch those cells off. And those cells act as the sort of generals of the immune system. They marshal all the troops. And so by taking those cells out, and we're talking about taking a, a small number of cells out, just the cells that are specific for the problem allergen, we can then sort of suppress the immune response just to that particular protein. So this is not like corticosteroids, which is another treatment for allergies, which basically suppress all of the immune system to mm -hmm. some extent. Here we're being much more specific. And what are the advantages of that? Well, the principal advantage is the specificity. So you're not applying global immunosuppression, which of course leaves people open to other illnesses, etc. Steroids also have other problems associated with long-term high-dose use, like cataracts, for example. But the other advantage that we have over sort of older forms of, of therapy for allergic disease is that because we've removed the parts of the molecule that interacts with the allergic antibody, these treatments are much safer. So we don't elicit allergic responses to the treatment itself. And that's a very common finding with more primitive forms of this kind of therapy where the whole allergen or even a, a, just an extract, a sort of gamish of the allergen is injected into the patient for many, many months in order to downregulate the response. So safety is important, specificity is important. And then the, the other thing that we've noticed in our clinical trials is that the duration of effect of this treatment has surprised us all. So we've found that we're able to give four injections and that can provide protection for at least two years. We, we haven't looked beyond two years yet, but this was a big surprise. So those three things really are the principal advantages. So you came up with spires that mimic grass pollen and spires that mimic dust mites. And can you tell us about the clinical trials that you set up to test these forms of treatment? Well, so far, uh, Circassia, the company that I mentioned, has conducted a whole raft of clinical trials for cat allergy, house dust mite allergy, grass allergy, and then the ragweed that I mentioned that's important uh, in the US. Mm -hmm. And so there's a set sort of structure that's required by the regulatory authorities for progression in clinical trials. You start with small trials that are just designed to assess safety. Then you move up to trials in larger numbers of people, uh, which are called phase two, phase two B. Uh, and then a, a few hundred people will be assessed. And then you move into phase three. And the phase three studies are really the big studies in a thousand or more individuals in which you really assess whether the treatment works. We know from our early clinical trials that these treatments do. The question is, can it work in the field, mm -hmm. if you like, in everyday life? And so the cat allergy product is halfway through phase three. And the grass and the house dust mite studies have completed the phase two. So they are ready to move into phase three. And really, phase three is the platform for launching a product into the market. For the grass allergy, you exposed 280 patients to the grass pollen and recorded their symptoms. I have to say, that's asking volunteers to put up with a lot, <laughs> exposing them <laughs> to their allergen for a period yep. of time. But then in the second phase of the trial, you gave them one of three treatments. So tell us what the three treatments were and what you found. 
Well, the three treatments were essentially, one of them was placebo, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, the control. And then the other two were both the same product, but just given uh, at different doses. So in all of the trials, one's constantly trying to finesse the approach and to try and evaluate what's the optimal dose or the optimal interval between the injections, etc. So in most of the phase two trials that we've done, the volunteers, the subjects, are asked to go into a chamber, a large room with full of seats, etc., in which the allergen is being blown around in the air at a controlled level. And so we know that the level of allergen in the room will elicit symptoms in the majority of those people. And then they sit down and they record their symptoms every half an hour. And they stay in the chamber for three or four hours. And they do that on consecutive days. So that exposure is performed at baseline before they've had any treatment. It's then performed after they've finished their treatment regimen. And then in most of the studies, there's also another one-year follow-up. So most of the studies have consisted of three different exposures. And the outcome is pretty simple, really. It's, you know, what level of eye and nose symptoms do you have, sneezing, itchiness, etc., watery eyes, before versus afterwards. And interestingly, as with most clinical trials, the placebo group has often has a significant improvement in their symptoms, and there are lots of reasons for why that might happen. But in the case of those clinical trials, the size of the improvement in the actively treated groups was much bigger than the placebo-treated groups and was statistically significant. Now, how did this compare to people who received treatment via other methods already on the market? You mentioned corticosteroids as one option. There are also antihistamines that people can take. So what are the benefits with respect to the spires in terms of efficacy and reduced side effects? Well, what's available now on the market, over-the-counter at least, is inhaled or topical corticosteroids. So for hay fever symptoms, these are a steroid spray that goes into the nose. Antihistamines, as you said, a variety of eye drops. So the problem with those treatments is you have to take them all the time. And people are very, very non-compliant with therapy. In almost every disease that one looks at, people who are prescribed drugs are not very good at taking them. And there are, you know, again, all kinds of reasons for that. So you know, one goal of what we're doing is to try and create a medicine that allows people to be compliant. So if you have to take your medicine every day, you won't be compliant because you'll forget or you'll lose it, etc., or it becomes a drag. And so the evidence in the literature suggests that people stop taking their meds. So one important goal is to create something that's convenient. And so four injections is pretty convenient. Uh, if it provides you with a year or two or maybe even longer of uh, relief from your symptoms. So that's one of the main things that we try and achieve with these therapies. Now, the other form of therapy that's been around for 100 years is injection immunotherapy, where you start off injecting tiny, tiny amounts, as I said earlier, of an extract or a sort of gamish of the allergen into the patient and then you basically increase the amount that you inject week on week or month on month until you can get up to what's called a maintenance dose. So you take the patient up to the point that they can tolerate a reasonably high dose and then you give them those injections monthly for about three years. So again, you know, compliance is an issue there because a three-year course of therapy is considered sufficient to provide, let's say, an additional three years of clinical benefit. And the other problem with those injections, apart from the inconvenience of having to see your doctor every month, 
is the fact that because you're injecting something that the patient is allergic to, they develop frequent allergic reactions. And these most often these are, you know, lumps at the site of injection, which can be painful and itchy, etc. So we've tried to design a medicine that avoids all of those allergic reactions. Some of those are serious, but more frequently they're just troublesome for the patient. And they, mm-hmm. they also detract from the patient's desire to finish the therapy. So it's all, again, down to compliance. So we thought that if we could provide something that was quick and that was safe, then compliance would be enhanced because it's easy to go and get four shots that don't give you any problems. So those really are the principal advantages over what's on the market. In terms of, you know, how efficacious are these new products compared to what's out there, it's a little bit difficult to draw direct comparisons. I mean, you can only really do that between trials that were conducted in a very similar environment. So I explained the exposure chambers. So some studies have been performed with antihistamines, and with the old-fashioned allergy shots and also with topical corticosteroids in that kind of environment. And in all cases, the level of efficacy that we're seeing with these new products is at least as good but generally better than all of those other products. So we have increased speed, increased safety, and equivalent or better efficacy. So we think that putting all those things together, this could you know, open up a market really and open up a therapy to people who had never previously sought it. So, you know, I mentioned that I'm allergic to grass pollen. I occasionally will go in and get some antihistamines, but generally speaking, I just tolerate my symptoms because I can't be bothered to take drugs every day. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go and have the old fashioned shots that are going to give me big lumps on my arms, etc. So I think, you know, I'm a good example of a person who has symptoms that they don't want to experience during the season and can now do something about it. Yes, well, we would all love a less grumpy mark in spring, I'm sure. (laughs) That's right, especially my wife. (laughs) And for the dust mite study, you had similar results for that phase two clinical trial. You treated 172 patients over 12 weeks, again receiving the four doses with the dust mite spire, and their allergy symptoms improved as well. So very promising. Where do you see allergy research in 10 years? Well, I, I think allergy research could go a long way in 10 years. <laughs> I, I really do believe that we're now on the cusp of a sort of sea change in the treatment of allergic disease with these approaches. We know that old-fashioned allergy treatments, such as injecting the allergen into the patient in small quantities and then building up the dose, we know that that works, and that's been working for 100 years. So I think we don't have a problem with efficacy And our new spire therapies at least reproduce that efficacy and perhaps do even better. So I think the safety and compliance are the big issues. And I think in 10 years' time, what I would like to see, Mm -hmm. and, and I think is quite feasible, is that we've extended the number of aeroallergen driven diseases that we treat. So, for example, Circassia has products under development for tree allergy and mold allergy and various other things. But I would also like to see developments in the food allergy area. So I think seafood allergy, peanut allergy, milk allergy, there are several severe 
allergies to food that one finds in the paediatric population, particularly in very, very small children. Uh, and these can lead to development of nasty skin symptoms, atopic dermatitis as well, or it can aggravate those diseases. So I, in 10 years' time, I would like to see this approach having been moved down into the paediatric population, of course, assuming that it's safe, and that we're then able to start treating these severe food allergies in very young children because the evidence is that those children go on what's called the allergic march, which basically starts off with allergic eczema when they're very small. Those children are at much higher risk of developing asthma as they get older and other allergic complications. So I think if we can come in early and treat those children, we'll make their lives much better. And of course, the families of an allergic child will tell you that it really does affect the entire family's quality of life. So if we can improve them at that stage, we will then... I think, be preventing the development of, of many more severe diseases like asthma later down the line. So I think in 10 years' time, we could be poised to see, for the first time in 50 years, a gradual reduction in the number of people in the population who have more severe allergic diseases. And then perhaps in time, you know, we'll start chipping away at those numbers even further and you know, maybe bring ourselves back in, in 20 years' time to where we were 20 or 30 years ago. I have to say, it gives me great hope that we're going to be able to treat many, if not all, the common allergies someday. Thank you very much for chatting with us today, Mark, and we will post links to your research on our podcast page. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Chris Kreese talking to Professor Mark Larchet of McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. Many thanks, Mark. We'll post links to your collaborative research and your biotechnology company, on our podcast page so the rest of us can learn more about what you do. Thanks very much, Roger. You know, I quite like the idea of inoculating myself against all these pesky allergens. And I don't know, I'm kind of envisioning one day being able to pet a cat and still breathing. It would be very nice. Have you met my psycho killer cat? He's not <laughs> called Freddy for nothing. You're not missing much with him, Chris. Oh, poor Freddie. I'm sure he's lovely. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, I sympathize with the hay fever sufferers because they'll surely now be rejoicing too. Yes, I'm already envisioning frolicking with cats in grass fields. That's a beautiful scene, Chris. Yes. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Kreese. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>